for their meeting down there and also for the um, travel song. So let's, let's just let's pray. Father, we love you. I just thank you so much for this opportunity, God, to just be a voice on your behalf and to bring forth your heart and your word to these precious people. And I just pray, Father, now for Bob and Gina as they're in Florida right now and Bob's speaking. We just declare your kingdom come over that meeting, Father. We ask that your word would go forth like fire and that you would light on uh, fire the hearts of those who hear it. We pray, Father, for just a confirmation of your word by the release of signs and wonders and miracles because you are real and you are in our midst. So demonstrate yourself, Father. And even in this meeting, Father, I pray that these things that you've stirred in my heart, Father, that you would give me the grace to deliver what you've given me. And that there would be grace on every heart, every year, to receive this word and to do something with it. And I just thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name. So turning your Bibles to Psalm 42. And... Um, <clears throat> We've already heard a little bit out of that psalm today. And this psalm is actually uh, a masculine of the sons of Korah. And the word masculine uh, is derived from the word stakal. And the meaning is uh, to be skillful or to be wise. All right? So, uh, it's, so the thought is that the psalms, that the, the masculines are actually instructional. Because they bring wisdom and they bring skillful living. That's what they're speaking into. And so, um, as we're finishing up this season of prayer, obviously we're always in a season of prayer. But here at the King's People, many of you know, we, um, we, focused, we focused on prayer during the spring. I felt like it was something the Lord was speaking. So, um, this is, I think, the fourth message on prayer. Or is it the third? The third message on prayer. We heard from Bob, then Dr. Brown, and then today. Um, and so, as we're speaking on prayer today, I want you to keep in mind that the things that this psalmist, the principles we're going to look into from this psalmist, are principles that will help us in our prayer life. It will give us skill and wisdom to maneuver through times of testing and times of uh, struggle, which I know is Messages like this typically don't sell very well. But I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to be very real with you today. And I'll probably shout a little bit, because that's kind of who I am and how I'm wired. And so if I spit on you folks in the front row, forgive me. I really do love you, and I'm not mad at you. I just get passionate. So the sons of Korah. Okay, so there's a... School of thought that believes that David wrote this psalm. There's other people that think that the sons of Korah actually wrote it. Well, if David wrote it so that the sons of Korah could sing it, or if the sons of Korah actually wrote it themselves, doesn't really matter to us because the principles remain the same, and that's what I'm after. But I want to I want to ask you guys: Does anyone remember who Korah was in the Bible? He was a rebel. Korah was the great uh, grandson of Levi. And Levi, of course, was uh, the one that uh, the inheritance of Levi, or the Levites, was God himself. They were the, the priestly line. And so when, when Jacob was handing out um, the inheritance to his sons, Levi's role was 
God. They were the priests. Well, Korah was um, one of the Kohathites, or I don't know how you pronounce it, but what happened was their specific role in caring for the house of God was to deal with the utensils. And it was a pretty monotonous and kind of not so glorious job. And so Korah started to envy Moses and Aaron, who had a more glorious job in, in that lineage. And so what he did was he rose up a rebellion against Moses. And the way God dealt with that rebellion was that he, through Moses, he, he prophesied judgment. The earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all of the rebels that were with him. But there were two sons that were spared. So before, now you, we got to understand that the Jews that were reading these masters of the sons of Korah, when they read those words, they're not just reading over them like we typically do. Instantly they're thinking, okay, these guys could have very well been swallowed up with the rest of the family. So before they even get into the psalm, God is already declaring, I am a redeemer and I am a merciful. Before the psalm even starts. Because if the sons of Korah wrote the song, or if they just sung it as, as, as lyrics that David gave them to sing as they're leading Israel in the procession before, in worship before the Lord. Either way, God's declaring through those sons, I am a redeemer, and I am a merciful. And see, that's something that we need to realize because... It's foundational that when we're, this whole psalm is dealing with anguish and challenges to the soul. Okay? And we have to realize before we even get into it that the foundation, the grid we need to look through is that God is merciful and He is a Redeemer. Because a lot of psalms, if you, if you, if you pay attention when you're reading through the psalms, a lot of the psalms actually start out with a trial. And with circumstances that are very difficult, and then typically by the end you have the breakthrough or the answer. That's not so. So what is the hope we need to hold on to at the very beginning? Even though the answer doesn't come in the song, he's still redeemed. And he's still merciful. And so as we're reading through this, I want you to keep that as the foundation. That's the lens we're looking for. Because it's not always easy to remember that God is a redeemer when you're in the midst of that challenge. So that's kind of the context of this song, okay? So let me just read it, and then we'll get into it um, in some detail. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God! My soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep 
calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. His song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to, to God my rock, why have you forgotten That's an interesting little thing there. Saying to the God who is his rock, why have you forgotten Doesn't seem like there's much of a rock there, does it? I'm starting to preach before I get through this. Help me, Jesus. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day, all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. So, as we're looking into this psalm, I want to do, you guys ever hear the term reverse engineering? Well, what we're going to do, it's like when you, when you have a, a, a product and you kind of reverse your way out of, like, from the, the end to the beginning. Right? Well, what I'm going to do is we're going to start at the end of this song, and we're going to kind of work our way back to the beginning. You know, a lot of times they say to do that with your goals in life. Start with where you want to be, and then work your way back to where you are, and that will carve out the path to where, how you're going to get there. Well, let's, let's kind of do that. Um, but as we're doing that, and in order to, to really uh, understand how this applies to our lives, because I don't want to read something if it's not, or, or preach on something if it's not going to really apply to our lives. So in order to, to, to take from this passage, this, this, this chapter, um, what God, I believe God wants us to get out of it, we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, how are we supposed to navigate in prayer through times of testing and suffering? Because, you know, and let's take it a step further. Let, let's do this. What's actually being tested in the psalmist's life? And so... You know, I just want you guys to understand, this isn't just a guy who misses church. Okay, and he's just like, oh, my soul pants after you, God, because I miss your presence. Because he talks about being in the community of believers. This is a man who's very, he tasted of something. Alright? He tasted of the glory of the presence of God. He tasted of the glory of the fellowship of believers worshiping God together in community. He tasted of his very identity, his very um, inheritance. All of that stuff was stripped away from him. And now it's but a faint memory and a distant dream. And here he is in process. And the very confidence of God is being tested in his heart. And so he's in, the, he's in the process, so to speak. Because he tasted of some glory, and it got ripped away from him. And he's saying, oh my soul, why are you in despair? It's like, how could you even ask that question, psalmist? You just read why you're in so much stinking despair. How could you not be in despair? You're in a situation where you tasted of something that was so real... They got stripped away from you, and now you're longing for it once again. And I don't know where you are in life, but God wants to give us tools 
to maneuver through. We have a promise from God. You know, I, I didn't catch all of Dr. Brown's message last time uh, for the last meeting because I was back with my, well, I was back helping with uh, the children. And so I got to ch- check out the last 10 minutes, but I heard him say that it was, I think it was like 13 years from the time he received a promise from God until the time it was fulfilled for writing. Something like that. 13 years. So in essence, what I'm trying to get at in this message is, what do you do now until then? Especially when every circumstance in your life is speaking the opposite of that promise. Because whether it was David or the sons of Korah who penned these words, everything in the natural that they had tasted that was so glorious and that was stripped away from them was now, not only was their confidence in that thing being fulfilled again, uh, being tested, but everything in the natural was speaking the opposite to them. Even the voices that were speaking around. It wasn't just the circumstances. The words of people who were once comrades were speaking against them, if it was David. So how are we to maneuver through life when we're going through a season of waiting and there's a suffering in our soul because we don't understand why we're going through these things. Oh, Jesus, help me. So let's just look. Let's reverse engineer this passage. Let's start with verse 11. And I want to, I want to say, you know, it's interesting because before this, uh, the Old Testament was translated into uh, Greek, Psalm 42 and 43 were actually one psalm. And so for time's sake, I can't get into Psalm 43, but we're going to start at verse 11. One thing you find through both of these psalms is the language and the theme in a lot of these verses are, are, are the exact uh, they're, they're exactly the same. And so it's, it's true with verse 11, verse 5 and 6. There's some very similar language. Um, let's start with 5 and 6. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O God, O my God, my soul is in despair. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan. And then in verse 11. Um, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of, of my countenance and my God. So one thing I appreciate about the Psalms is that the psalmists seem to really have a grasp on how to maneuver the human soul through uh, challenges. You know, there's like a, I don't know what it is, but something about religiosity doesn't like to deal with emotions. You know, emotions are very raw. And sometimes there's a struggle in our hearts to bring those raw feelings to God. You know, and so a lot of times, instead of bringing them to God, we do the wrong thing with them. We start bringing them to other people. We start suppressing them and getting offended at God. But what is, you know, the, the thing I love about the psalmist is they seem to really know how to not suppress and not just puke them out, but how to steward their emotions in a way that they maneuver through by expressing them in prayer in the relationship with God. They really, there's a, there's a confidence that, that the psalmist seem to have in their, in their understanding that they can actually bring these emotions to God 
and be saved. And so before I get into this, I just want you to understand something. Your perspective of God is directly going to uh, affect the way you put down your guard and let your heart open. And I think that's something God's really trying to speak into you. Because I feel like there's some people in here that are disappointed with God. And you might say, well, I'm not disappointed with God, I'm disappointed with some other people. But really... If you dig deeper, you're going to find out that it's not that person that's actually disappointing you. I know people disappoint us. But a lot of times that's an excuse because we don't really want to say we're upset with God. And I'm telling you that not because I'll point a finger at you. I'm telling you that because I have been there. And it is a nasty pill to swallow and it's a horrible place to be. But these guys really, in the psalm, they really have a way of dealing with emotions and not leaving them unchecked, but stewarding them. Because if you don't deal with these things rightly, it will lead you to either complacency, uh, distancing your heart from God, and ultimately despair and destruction. Um, you know, it was even read in Psalm 103. Um, in the beginning, but one of the, before I get into that, the thing I want to point out with these passages is um, that I just read is, is an antidote to to despair is hope speech. It's talking to yourself with hope speech. And, you know, I, I say things like talking to yourself, and a lot of times people think well, that's flaky. It's, it's too charismatic, or it's too Pentecostal. It's too let me just tell you this, it's biblical. We read in, the, in Psalm 103, it was read earlier, praise the Lord, oh my soul, David says to his soul, who probably didn't feel like praising God in that moment, but he didn't let his emotions dictate whether he was going to relate to God or not relate to him. He spoke to his own soul and said, you will line up, you will submit. You're going to praise. This psalmist says, the antidote to despair, or the medicine for despair, is to start speaking hope over your soul. And I know it sounds flaky, and sometimes it even feels weird when you start doing it. But I'm telling you, it works. God knows what he's doing. Because there's something about speech that is very, very powerful motivator. It, it puts motion, puts things into motion in the kingdom. You know, there's that passage where Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, there's a passage in Proverbs 18, I think it's in verse 21, says that uh, life and death, or death and life, life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who eat the fruit thereof will be satisfied by it. In other words, if you speak negativity constantly, you're going to regurgitate negativity. If you speak positively, and I'm not just talking about self-help. I'm talking about hope speech. Hope is the, is the joyful anticipation that God's goodness is going to break through in your life. Even when it doesn't look like it. It's a joyful anticipation that His goodness is going to come into my life in this area where I'm in despair. You know, my wife went to a conference recently and she said she, she said this guy made this comment about negativity. He said that 
It takes 16 positive words to undo one negative. Whew! 16 positive words to undo one negative. That's pretty powerful. You know, in essence, our tongue, James puts it this way, uh, the book of Jacob, or James, James 3 says that uh, our tongue is like a rudder on a ship. And our tongue literally steers our ship. So the direction of our life, the course of our life, is set by our speech. So it's important. And look, I understand that it is hard to speak hope when you are battling despair. But this is supposed to be part of the dynamic of our prayer life. This is, this is one of the things that helps us to maneuver through those times of darkness. When things in the natural circumstances seem to be confusing. You know, it's like, okay, it doesn't feel like God is with me. My soul is in despair. I'm not, I'm not getting it. But, but, but soul, I'm not going to yield to you in, in the emotions that are trying to take me down. So, why is this type of speech important? Well, because, go, I'm not going to go there for time's sake, but in Joshua chapter 1, this is when Moses dies and Joshua takes the mantle of leadership from Israel. And God's commissioning Joshua to lead this nation. And he says over and over and over in this chapter 1, he says, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. And I'm thinking, well, wow, that's pretty powerful. Like, I would love God to speak that over my life. But there's a reason he's saying it. Because he's going to be tempted not to be strong and courageous. He's going to go through situations that are going to attack his soul to where he's going to, that area is going to be tested. But the question is this. Okay, you're telling me to be strong and courageous, but how do I do that? How do I be strong and courageous? Do I just latch on to this word? Well, that might be part of it. But he goes on to say, this book of the law that I've given you, do everything that's in it. And do not depart from it. And you will have success. Okay, God, so I have to, in order to be strong and courageous, I have to obey your word. But that wasn't enough. Because God goes on to say, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. But meditate on it day and night. And if you do that, then your way will be prosperous and you will find good success. He doesn't say do not let this word of the law depart from your mind. He doesn't say do not let it depart from your Bible. He doesn't say do not let it depart from your notebook that you took from the message. He says do not let the words of this law depart from your mouth. Because that, my friend, is biblical meditation. And I'm telling you, when our speech is negative, it's demonic meditation. When our speech is hope, it is biblical meditation. Because it's not just what rolls around in our mind that matters. It's what comes off our tongue. Speech is like a rudder. It will direct you. And this psalmist, there was something he knew about. He knew that when he was going through a confusing time, how am I going to get through this? I'm going to speak hope to my soul. Mike Lebonic, you will make it through this trial. 
You will know the destiny of God for your life. You will step in and into that thing. And you will fulfill God's purpose in your generation. And I speak that stuff over my soul. You know why? Because my soul gets tested in those areas. It's part of our prayer life. It's part of the relationship. This is what we do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, in the secret place. I'm going to tell you what is supposed to define success in our lives. It doesn't matter if you have this big pulpit to speak in front of the masses. That means nothing. It means nothing to God. You know what success is in God's sight? It's when nobody knows and nobody sees it. And you take your struggle in the secret place. And when you have a temptation to take your appetite to the flesh, you take it to God instead in secret. It's when you don't, don't want to go to God because there's a struggle in your soul and everything that he promised you is not coming to pass. And you don't understand how to deal with it. You don't understand why you're going through this. But yet you're faithful in that little thing. And you take that thing into the secret place. And God, I don't get it. My soul is in despair. So you praise God. You will hope. You hope in Him because you will praise Him again. And you go to that secret place and you start maneuvering through with the biblical tools that God gives us. That's what makes you great in God's sight. Each one of us has a different place in God's body. Some of them, some of them are seen and some of them are unseen. Not one of them has a different value to God. Every single one of them is important. Every single one of them. Every role that we play. Every act of kindness. Every cup of water. Every child we embrace. It all means something to Him. It's the little faithful things that make you great in God's eyes. It's about the relationship. So we have to speak hope to our souls. i got to move along here. Be gracious. So in verse 6, let's look at this. My soul is cast down within me. Um, therefore, I remember. This is another thing that was brought up at the beginning of this worship time. Catherine said, you know, it's, it's, it's important when we come together we remember what God has done for us. Part of a relationship with God. And it's interesting, he says, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you. He says, Look, I'm going through a difficult time right now, but I'm going to be intentional to remember my God. So, why is this important? Well, I'll tell you why. Because in times like this, that it's very easy, you know, when, when, you're, when you're being tested and you're being challenged, it's very easy to focus on the questions. Sometimes it's unhealthy to question God. Now, I'm going to get to when it's healthy, to, when we're in a state of, of bringing our questions to God when we're healthy. But a lot, there's a lot of times we, we question God in ways that are just not healthy. We gravitate toward what our emotions are pulling out of us, and we focus on the circumstances. We focus on the, why am I going through this? We focus on the, you know, this, 
this doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem fair. You know, I just heard two just utterly tragic situations in the past week. Both families Christian. And I'm like, you know, when you're just looking right at the circumstances, it seems like God is unjust. But see, when you back up from the situation and you look at the overall picture and you realize God, no matter whether I understand this thing or I don't understand it, God is a redeemer. He's a merciful redeemer. That was the foundation of this song. A merciful redeemer. And you see the situation through that lens. It still may not make sense, but at least you can put your confidence in the fact that he will redeem it. Somehow, he's going to take the anguish of my soul and he's going to use it. And somehow, he's going to take the, take the anguish of my soul and he's going to comfort it. Because that's just who he is and that's just what he's like. And so when you're in the situation and you're tempted to, 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 to just think about the circumstances, we have to be intentional to remember the Lord. And, you know, the thing is, it's like, what happens is when you don't do that, there's a process that starts to go on in our lives where we begin to abandon the truths that we do know for the lie that our emotions are trying to tell us. And the devil comes in and plays on our emotions. And when we're vulnerable and we're going through a hard time, you think the enemy doesn't know that? How many times have I been in a situation where I'm going through something I do not understand, and as soon as I wake up in the morning, I hear the whisper of the enemy? Feel the glory cloud. You gotta press through that mess. How do you do it? Remembering the works of the Lord, remembering his 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 his, his history with you. Recall the encounters you had with him. Recall the time he spoke to you that you're his son, his daughter. Every one of us has a history in God if you're born again. Even if it's just your salvation experience. And you know what's happening? What's happening when we're going through this type of thing, when we're intentional to remember the Lord, we are literally engaging in the process of renewing our minds. Because anybody, anybody can think about the Lord when the presence of God is causing goosebumps to be on top of your goosebumps. But when you're in a desert and your promise has been stripped from you, your identity has been stripped from you, The thing, you know, even the presence of God you're not feeling, it's all stripped from you. And you're sitting there, and you're desolate, and you're in desperation, and you're just sitting there going, oh, I must have sinned. I must have done something to deserve this. That's when it counts. That's when the rubber meets the road, and we have to be intentional to remember the Lord. Because it... I'm telling you, there's a process of renewing our minds that God wants us to engage in that moment. You know, I read in a book called The Power of a Transformed Mind by Bill Johnson. He talks about re, uh, reminding ourselves of the Lord. It's reminding, reminding. He says it's like rewiring your mind. And so when you're going through a challenge and you're and everything in the natural is speaking against the nature of God and the character of God in your life, and you step back and you start remembering, God, I remember the time when I didn't have the finances 
and I sought you, and you answered. I remember the time when I was feeling like an orphan because my parents got divorced, and my dad wasn't around, and I didn't—I didn't, never felt the embrace or the love of a father. But I remember the time, Father, when you revealed yourself to me as Abba, and you touched my heart in a way that totally changed the course of my life. I remember that. I remember the time, God, when when it seemed like. Uh, you know, my, my, my child was sick and it seemed like they were going to die. But you came through and you touched them and you healed them. I remember, you know what starts happening? You start to see things from a whole different perspective. You start to think about your situation from a whole different perspective. From the perspective where you are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Because when you're down in the muck and the mire and you let your mind stay down there, you're going to stay down there. But when you're intentional to remind yourself of how good God is, you will start to God will start to cause your faith to rise. And your heart that was sinking in despair will start to rise up and start to be buoyant over your circumstances and start floating. Start floating through life. Start soaring through life. You know, we have a history in God. Each one of us have had encounters with This is why I jumped. It's one of the main reasons why I journal. I want a track record to hand off to my children one day. But you know what? That journal helps me in my relationship with God right now. Because there are times when I'm being tested and I don't understand what I'm going through. And I can't see through the clouds and the darkness. And there are pillars of truth that God has established in my life that I'm supposed to gravitate to and hold on to until that storm uh, subsides. But the way you, one of the ways you do that is you remind yourself of the Lord. This is the process of renewing the mind. God is establishing strongholds of truth. Strongholds of who he is and what he's like. He's building character. There's so much that goes on in those, in those times. But um, Let's look at verse 4, verse 7 to 9, 7 through 9. These are all, look at these verses together because, again, the language is similar. And there's a similar theme. Um, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my heart within me or my soul. Verse 4. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving and a multitude keeping festival. And he goes on in verse um, 7. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me at night. Then look at this prayer. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So what's happening here is the psalmist is literally pouring out his heart. He's pouring out his heart to God. And, you know, it says in, in uh, verse 7, deep calls to deep. You know what that speaks to me? That speaks to me that this psalmist, that this is in the midst of the waves and the breakers just breaking his life. He is going through the ringer. And his life is broken before God. And yet deep calls to deep. What that speaks to me is the psalmist is, is in a place where in the midst of his brokenness, he feels safe enough to bring his heart to God. And to be reached. You know, 
The temptation in Christendom is to bring to God what you think he wants to hear. Instead of just being yourself and coming to him and, and just pouring out your guts to him. And I'm telling you that your revelation of who he is and what he's like will affect the way you're able to do this or not. There's a lot of people, and they're sincere good people, who carry their burdens that don't unburden their heart to God the way he designed us to. You know, he requires us to pour out our heart. He will not do that for you. But he will fill you. If you, if you pour out your heart to him, he will fill you. He'll keep his end of the bargain if we keep ours. But see, there's something, uh, there's, a, there's almost like a false mysticism. That, well, he knows what I'm going through, and he knows what I need. And there's even a scripture that said, before you pray it, he knows it. Matthew, he knows your needs before you pray it. Yeah, that's true. But he wants to co-labor with you, so that through the process of him meeting that need, you're related to him. And so this false mysticism, well, he knows what I need, so I don't have to share my struggle with him. Hogwash. That's baloney. That's like my wife Lisa and I, you know, her getting to know me so well that she knows what I need and she knows what I want, so I never end up, I never relate to her. How would that relationship end up? It's ridiculous. In, in a physical relationship, we wouldn't even think like that, but yet we put that stuff on God. Talk to him about what you're going through. If it's a struggle, share your struggle. If it's a joy, share your joy. If you have something to be thankful for, be thankful. If you don't have something to be thankful for, be thankful. Because you do have something to be thankful for. Interesting stuff, you know. And I'm not saying I've been, uh, I'm not saying that I've been perfect in these things, you know. I've had my share of struggle and stuff, but I, I'm thankful for these tools because now I'm starting to use them more and it's helping me. But you know, there's a passage in Philippians 4, you guys are probably all familiar with this. You know? It says, always with prayer. How's, how's it start out? How's it start out? Help me know. Yeah. Well, yeah, but how's it start? Be anxious for nothing. There it is. Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God, so that the peace that surpasses understanding will guard your heart and mind. See, what happens is, we'll go through a situation we don't understand, but it's trying the word that God gave us, or whatever it is. The promise of God is being tested. Whatever it is. And so, if we're not, if we're not either able to or willing to bring our heart before God and pour our heart out to Him, if we're not, if we don't do that, then we are forfeiting the peace of God. It's going to help us maneuver through this. Because what happens is we start getting anxious, and we start getting, you know, worried, and we start trying to fix things in our own strength. And uh, I hate that feeling. We start birthing Ishmael's. Because waiting stinks sometimes. <laughs> Just to be real. It's a difficult thing to do, especially when you're wired like me. I like to get something done. But, you know, as hard as it is, there's a 
in the process, there's something so rich that takes place. I'm telling you guys, God, God is good. So, this passage in Philippians 4, there's something that happens when we pour out our, our heart to God. And, and there's a peace that surpasses understanding, okay? And a lot of times the things we wrestle with are things we don't understand. See, the way God designed us is that our spirit is supposed to rule over our emotions or our soul. And so when we're battling through that anxiety, be anxious for nothing, you know, if we don't pour out that anxiety on God, then we're going to be filled with anxiety. But when we pour it out, then he's able to touch our heart with his peace. And it's the peace that surpasses understanding or the lack thereof. Now, you might not even get the answer to the question you have. But one thing I can promise you is that when you pour your heart out to him and you start really getting real with him, even if the circumstances don't change, his peace will touch you. And when that happens, you are setting the course of being maneuvered through that trial and coming closer into the promise. And if your struggles are like my struggles, most of the time they don't end overnight. So to maintain that peace, you got to maintain that relationship of pouring out your guts to God. See, if we don't deal with these things, we suppress them. And so then we live in constant anxiety because then the next little thing that comes along sets us off. And it could be just a little thing, and typically it wouldn't rock us at all. But because we haven't dealt with pouring our hearts out to God in a genuine and sincere way on a consistent basis in relating to Him in prayer, then the smallest little thing just, you know, it's like that anxiety just gets on us. So let's move along. Now this one here is kind of related to pouring your heart out to God. It's kind of taking it a step deeper. Psalm 42.3 He says, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? People say to me all day long, where is your God? So here you have the outside voices. And this guy is literally in tears. He says, my tears have been my food. In other words, he's not eating. (laughs) He's in a place where he is so distraught that he cannot even eat. So my question is, why does God allow us to have that much anguish in our soul? If God is good, you ever hear that question when you're sharing your faith? Then why so much suffering? Well, I believe part of it is because it's the very nature of God to rule. The Bible says in Hebrews 5 that Jesus, he prayed with tears and loud crying to the one who was able to save his soul. To the one who was able to save him. And he was heard because of his godly submission. But it was through tears and loud crying. And John said, you know, let me just say something else about that passage. It's kind of funny because he, he, he prayed with tears and loud crying to the one who was able to save him from death. And it almost looks like the one, it almost looks like God didn't answer his prayer because he died anyway. But sometimes God saves us from death by raising us from the dead. And sometimes God saves us from death by keeping us from death. 
In God's economy, both work, because he just happens to be able to raise the dead. But see, if I were to write the thing, I would just want to keep the ladder. I'd rather just like, don't let me die all the way, God. Just like, keep me from dying. Just save me, spare me from it. But somehow, someway, in his ultimate wisdom, there are times when he lets, when even when you cry, I mean, Jesus, the Son of God, prayed with tears and loud cries to the one who was able to save him from death, and he went ahead and died with him. And it says he was heard. It doesn't say God ignored that prayer. He was heard because of his godly submission. He submitted all the way through death, went into that joker, swallowed it up, was raised from the dead, and grabbed those keys and handed them to you and me so that when we face that joker, we got authority now. That's what I'm talking about. Ooh, I like that. And I'm telling you, death still hurts. We got to die a million deaths in this lifetime before we meet him. Why? I'll tell you why. There's a little promise. Probably not a refrigerator promise. It's in the book of Ezekiel. It goes like this. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you, from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. I'll tell you something. A heart of flesh is an awesome thing because your conscience is clean before God. You don't have to wait for sin, guilt resting on you. You can sense the nearness of the presence of God sometimes. You can hear the crystal clear voice of God, the whisper of God sometimes. But you know what else? When someone comes along and hurts that heart of flesh, it hurts. The breakings of God are not easy. But the heart of flesh is intentional. God gave us a heart of flesh. Why tears? It's part of the nature of God. John 17, Jesus goes into the garden. He starts pouring out his heart to God. And I always used to focus on the things he prayed for. Because he's praying for his disciples. And he's praying over things that are, he's just about to go to the cross. These are the most urgent things on the heart of Jesus that he's trying to bear to the Father. That he, he's praying these things through before he goes to the cross. But you know what struck me one day? is the fact that he was praying. It's demonstrating to us the very nature of God. And so the process of us going through trial and bringing those struggles to God, pouring our hearts out, weeping even, is us growing in the very nature of God. If the Son of God has to weep before Father, how much do we have to weep before Father? How much equally or more so? I mean, he's, he, we're creating His image, but He's also fashioning his, his image in us. Jesus was the Son of God, but He's also the Son of Man. He grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew. He grew. He grew in demonstrating the image of God. If he had to grow in that, how much more do we? So part of why he gives us tears is because this is part of the process of developing the character and the image of God in us. And I'm telling you, this is, this is the ultimate question. What do we do with our tears? Because when you're at that point, and you're so broken, and, you, and the confusion is so heavy, 
and your soul is in so much despair that you don't know how to handle it, you're tempted in that moment to take your tears into self-pity or to take your tears to somebody and start grumbling and complaining. But how do the psalmists deal with it? Well, let's look at Psalm 126. I love this song. Speaking of tears. Amen. Psalm 126. I'm just, for time's sake, I'm just going to focus on um, the verse 4 on. But the beginning, this is, the psalmist starts talking about we're like those who dream. You know, and God had, had brought the fortunes to Israel, but all of a sudden, this is after the glory days, verse 4, he says, Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheep with him. So how are we supposed to handle our tears? How are we supposed to steward them? I'm telling you right now, the psalmist shows us we're supposed to sow them back into God. The Bible says in Psalm 56, I think it's in verse 8, that he takes our tears and he bottles them. There's a temptation, friends, to do wrong with our tears. To grumble and complain, to get all caught up in self-pity. But when we turn our tears, turn our hearts to God, we pour out our guts and we sow our tears back into Him, then look what happens. We reap the answer. He says, those who sow in tears will, will reap. We reap with what? Joyful shouting. He, he gives us the answers to our prayer, and in addition to that, the joy of His kingdom. Pretty cool exchange, isn't it? So God desires us to sow our tears in Him. And I'm, I'm telling you, there's no grief that goes unnoticed. There's no grief that goes unused. You know, when we, when we take our tears to the Lord, and we invest, and we put it in business terms, because there are some businessmen here. There's some farmers in here too, though. So when we take our tears, and we sow them, we invest them back into God. And we bring them to Him. From our heart to his heart. And we pour them into him. He gathers those tears. Now, that's literally seed. And, you know, we want the dream to be fulfilled. But oftentimes, you know, we want the harvest. But oftentimes, we want to, we want to shortcut the tears. And I'm not talking about trying to work up tears. I'm telling you, you don't have to do that in God's kingdom. He'll bring them along one day. And if you haven't tasted that salty experience, it's a coming. <laughs> and I'm not saying that as a gloom and doomer. I'm grateful for that. Sometimes my heart feels so hard. And I'll go through stuff that breaks me up. And I get to God and I just start crying. You know, and I just start relating to his heart and pour my tears into his heart and I start to feel his presence. I start to, even if it's not his presence, even if just the burden gets lifted and the circumstances start to, to, to uh, maybe they don't even change, but it just, they don't weigh on me anymore. It, the breakings of God are beautiful. 
When God gives you tears, it's not a bad thing. But we try to fight it so much because it is painful. But there is, a, there is a knowledge of God that you will not get unless you share in the fellowship of His Son. We all want to, you know, we all want to glory in the power of His resurrection. But friend, there's only one way to get there. And it's through suffering and death. And I know that doesn't sell many CDs, but I'm telling you, it's true. But we've got to learn to invest our heart, invest our tears, invest, you know, our brokenness back into God. This is going to help us maneuver through these times of testing. And finally, um, well, let me just read this passage, Galatians 6. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh will reap from his flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from his Spirit eternal life. So when we learn to, to sow our tears or invest our tears in God, we will, reap, we will reap a reward. He says, let us not grow weary of doing good in due season. We will reap if we do not give up. So the psalmist invested his tears in God. And then finally, verse 1 and 2. I'm going to get back to Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night. Oh, no, that's the next verse. So the thing I love about this particular passage is that the psalmist takes his pain and he uses it as a platform and as an appetite for God. But the thing that really gets my attention is he doesn't say I hunger for God here. He says I thirst. Now, I don't know if you ever experienced hunger pains, but hunger pains kind of come and go. But once thirst sets in, it's a nagging, chronic pain. I mean, it's just, there's no, like, once you're thirsty, you're thirsty. It doesn't come and go, you know what I'm saying? And it's like, he takes this chronic anguish, and he turns it into an appetite. Because the temptation when you're going through this type, type of thing is to either steer your appetite back to God or to steer your appetite to the flesh. Because one thing that someone who has tasted of God at one point in time knows is that once you taste of that well, you know that it satisfies. So when you're going through something you don't understand and it's confusing, you don't get it, and you turn to the world or the flesh and you try to fill that thing with Facebook or TV or ministry or something besides him. You always come back from taking that goal or that fight. And but this psalmist knew. I don't understand this situation. My soul's in despair. I'm at the lowest of lows. I'm speaking hope to my soul. I don't get it. My bones are in anguish. My tears are my food. But one thing I know is that you are the satisfaction of my soul. My appetite is going to continue to be for you. Because you, like Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can I go?
So when we're in this time of trying to maneuver through, it's important because the temptation is going to be basically, you know, the disciples in the garden, you know, Jesus goes up into the garden, and the disciples, he says, tarry with me for one hour, pray, one hour. And it says in one, one of the versions of the Gospels, it says that they fell asleep because of the grief. It says their souls were in grief, so they fell asleep. A lot of times we think, well, they just want spiritual, whatever, whatever kind of junk we try to put on them. But they were under so much grief that all they tried to do, they tried to sleep it off. You ever been there? Have you ever been there? When your soul is in so much grief that you're like, I can't even, I don't want to, I'm just going to bed. Hopefully I'll wake up and it'll all be different. It was all a nightmare. Even sleep won't satisfy. <laughs> but the temptation is to go to something of the world. But I'm telling you, if we learn these biblical tools of, you know, speaking hope over our soul, of pouring out our heart to God, of investing our tears in God, of being real with God, and of, of thirst, continuing to thirst for Him, even when the temptation is to thirst for other things, God will maneuver us through and show us that He is a merciful Redeemer. I want you to stand with me. I just want to say this, you know, God is so good, He's so gracious. Even though I understand these things, I have not by any means been perfect in them. In fact, I fail in every one of these areas. But the thing I love about God and His kingdom is that He is very gracious and He's very patient in working with us. But a lot of the suffering that I've had in my own life was because I didn't heed biblical wisdom or skillful living like this. Some of the, you know, I've carried so many burdens for too long. Because I didn't bring my heart to him. You know, I've not faced the fears. Instead of relating to Abba, I've tried to carry it myself and work it out in my own strength. And I feel like that's something God wants to work in this group today. I feel like there's things that maybe there's fears. Maybe there's unresolved issues. Maybe there's, uh, you know, things that have hindered our relationship because we haven't dealt with them properly. Offenses with God or with people. But God's given us some biblical tools on how to maneuver through. And he's trying to bring us into a promised land and, and into fulfillment of, of promises over our lives. And I don't even want you so much to focus on that right now. I want you to focus on the relationship, as was said. I want you to focus on how can I take these tools that were given today and start applying them to my life. What are the ones that spoke to me most? And how can I take these to God right now, right here? Okay, would you turn on that music? And I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna pray a little bit up front. Just just say a couple words of prayer. And I'm just I don't want to like make this real formal or, or anything. I just want you to feel free. If there are things you want to talk to God about, you're something to say. Come on. The things you want to talk to God about relating to this message, I would I would just like to invite you. If you want to find an altar at your seat, if you want to come up front and bow at the altar, whatever you want to do, I want to give you freedom to just be yourself before God. Come on. I don't do this speaking. No. Uh, John, you know me. I don't do this. But I just strongly feel that uh, we are here with a transactional mentality. I give God this, He should give this to me. God is not obligated to us for nothing. 
I just feel God wants to deal with our motives and intentions this morning. Because there are three men who told the king, our God is able to save us from this fire. But even if he does not, we would not bow. You know, that's where God wants us to be. That's where God wants us to be. Because we come to God saying, God, get me out of this hot water. Now I'll pray, I will sing, I will do, I will keep memorizing. I do all these things spiritual so that I'll get out of hot water. God says, hey, you know what? No, 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 no. Now that's what he told Abraham. I am your great reward. Why are you following me, Abraham? Because I'll give you a name, a nation, and a blessing. That's why Abraham started off. He manufactured his promises. And then a point came where he moved from the promise to the person. And so when God told him, go sacrifice your promise early in the morning, bang. Because the promise didn't matter anymore. His comforts didn't matter anymore. Because the promise was shifted to the promise giver. It didn't matter. I mean, you read Hebrews chapter 11. There are people who died without experiencing the promise. And God is saying, hey, I am your great reward. Are you coming for the rewards that I'm giving you? Here it is. I am your great reward. I mean, let's not try to manipulate God. Let's not try to manipulate the promises of God. God is looking for a love relationship. Would you love him in spite of not getting out of the hot water? That's what God is seeking this morning. Would you tell me, God, my finances are messed up. My emotions are messed up. Things are all so bad. But you know what? I want to love you. I want to love you, God, for who you are and not for what you give. We follow God for what he gives and not for what he is, who he is. And this morning, I just so strongly feel God is calling us to me. And you know what? If only you will follow me, out of that intimacy will birth my purposes and plans for yourself. You know, we kind of flipped it. We flipped it. We made this a business. We made this a product. You give this, I'll give this to you. Ooh, God is not obligated to give us nothing. We are sinful bound for hell. Hell is the obligation of God for men. But in Jesus, he established a relationship with men. And when we can keep that as the core, when that intimacy is burst, purposes and plans of God for our life in this world will be burst. There's no other way. There's no other way. Because if you have money, you can start a ministry. If you're good in speaking, you can start a ministry. But all of those things will burn on the judgment day. If something has not been burnt out of the intimacy of the past. 
Everything else, all us, I mean, everything that we do and say is going to be burnt. May it not be that we will also burn. Because out of the intimacy of the Father, God says, I have plans for you. I have purposes for you. But would you seek me for who I am? Would you love me for who I am? Can I be your exceeding great reward and nothing else? Would we follow Jesus from that perspective? That's what he is calling us this morning. I met with a friend and we were just talking about really seeking God for promises in our lives and just that continual faithfulness to the Lord. And my friend said something to me that has transformed, really transformed my life. And she said, you know, there's promises and, and seeking God and trying to attain his promises, there's, that's good, but it's not primary. Because whether you receive the promise or you don't receive the promise, that promise in itself will never satisfy you because that promise is not God. Something that he can give and something you can co-labor with him. So whether that promise is healing, whether that promise is um, finances, I mean really the promise what it is is not relevant. It's, it's the fact that at any moment and at any given time, God has given you perfect, complete and perfect access to satisfaction. But the only thing the only thing that will bring that is his presence. And after she said that, something in me, like, came off of me. Something in me shut off where whether I receive the things that God has promised for our family, whether I receive the things that God has promised for my life as an individual, it doesn't matter because, I mean, it does matter, but it's not essential. It's what am I doing with the moments in my day when I can... And, can enter that place of satisfaction. And it's him. And so just for me, it's been just stepping away for a moment. You know, we all have moments in our day where we can turn to something or we can turn to him. And you might feel something, you might not feel something, but we've been granted perfect access. So there's really no excuse not to be satisfied. We have that power that's given to us. So. Sure. So God, I thank you, Lord, that through your Son, you have given us perfect access to your throne of grace, God. Thank you that we don't have to work it up. It's just something as simple as you know, what Mike shared today, just coming to you. So God, I pray that um, during this week, Lord, you would remind us of the things that truly satisfy and that it's you. God, I pray that you would pull us away from those things, Lord, that don't satisfy. Even good things, Lord. God, I pray that our hearts would burn for you, God. God, I pray for places in our lives where we have grown cold or gone to sleep. God, I pray that you would awaken us and that we would burn for you, God. Not the things of you only, God, but we would burn for you and you alone, God. And I pray that as we burn for these things, Lord, that it would spread around us in our places of influence, God. In our families, in our children, in our parents, in our relatives, in our friends, in our places of work. 
in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in this city, oh God. But I ask, Lord, that you would keep us uh, reminded that it's first and foremost our relationship with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to encourage you guys to take these things home and just really take them before the Lord and continue to let God work in your life over the stuff that God spoke to you through the message and the words that were given today. I really appreciate your attention. I know it was kind of a long meeting, but you guys hung in there and did really well. Thank you, everybody who participated in sharing and receiving. Um, Father, I just declare your blessing over this flock. The Lord bless you and keep you. He'll be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you. May he smile on you. May your children be blessed. May your marriages be blessed. May your uh, businesses and uh, workplaces be blessed. May your schools be blessed. And may you shine like the sun forever as the people of God. May you be torchbearers in those places and bring these things into those places, Father, we ask your kingdom come in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.